The sun is down and the stars are out. Everyone turn up your volume and turn down your lights. The Twilight Beacon begins transmitting now. Jedediah D. Blackwell here, coming to you from the Twilight Beacon, here in the American Southwest. Tonight, we bring you two of the most well-known stories of American fiction, adapted for vintage radio broadcasts. These are tales of terror and mystery, from the master of gothic horror, Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe is an author that needs no introduction. He is one of the most famous authors of American literature. Poe first gained fame as a newspaper and periodical writer specializing in literary critique and cultural satire. He went on to gain fame as a fiction writer, initially for his detective stories featuring C. Auguste Dupin. Poe's most famous works of horror include short stories like The Mask of the Red Death and The Cask of Amontillado, along with dark poems like The Raven, which is among a few of the most famous and reproduced poems ever written. The aptly named radio program Suspense was the longest-running show of its kind, holding a primetime slot on CBS Radio for two decades. Early seasons mostly featured murder mysteries or tales of perilous adventure, but later science fiction and supernatural horror were more frequent themes. Suspense also made a habit of adapting popular short stories for the radio, and some of their more popular broadcasts retold the works of authors like Ray Bradbury, H.P. Lovecraft, and Charles Dickens. Suspense presented adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum four times, and tonight we bring you the first of those airings. And now, The Pit and the Pendulum, as heard on Suspense in January of 1943. This is your narrator, the man in black. Again about to introduce tonight's Columbia program, Suspense. The story is The Pit and the Pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe. The adaptation by John Dixon Carr. Our guest is the distinguished American actor, Mr. Henry Hull, who plays the part of a prisoner of the Spanish Inquisition. If you've been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that Suspense is compounded of mystery, suspicion, and dangerous adventure to hold you in a precarious situation and withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with The Pit and the Pendulum and Mr. Hull's performance, we again hope to keep you in suspense. And now, The Pit and the Pendulum. death with that long agony. And when at length they unbound me and I was permitted to sit, I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sound of the inquisitorial voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum. Yet, for a while, I saw, but without terrible an exaggeration, I saw the soft and nearly imperceptible waving of the sable draperies on the walls of the room. I saw the flames of the seven tall candles which burned on the table. I saw the lips of the black-hooded judges, and these lips appeared to me white, white as paper, white as horror. I saw them writhe with a deadly locution. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name. Gerard Captain Jean d'Albray. Good fathers, gentlemen. We hear you, my son. I, I am very weak and infirm. 
I've been confined for many months in a dungeon. I, I've been tormented by nightmares. Conscience, one trusts. Pray silence, Fra Antonio. Even, even now, I, I have no knowledge of where I am or to whom I may be speaking. You are speaking to me, my son. I am Fra Pedro de Espela, prior of the Dominicans of Segovia and Grand Inquisitor of all Spain. Is this... Is this the court of the Inquisition? It is. Oh, then, then God help me. He will help you, my son, if you trust him. But I, I am a French officer. That is true. A soldier and creature of the Archfiend Napoleon Bonaparte. But a French officer nonetheless. A prisoner of war. By what right do you try me in this court? Let the clerk read the charges against this prisoner. Pray silence while the clerk reads the charges. The charges against the prisoner are as follows. Imprimis, that he is one Jean d'Albret, a captain of artillery in the army of Bonaparte, so-called Emperor of the French. This means nothing, as the prisoner says. It is no crime. Proceed. Item, that on the fourth day of September in the year of our Lord, 1808, that says Jean d'Albret did wear to and marry the most noble lady, the Doña Beatrice Valdez, niece of the... and ward of the illustrious... One moment. Your Excellency spoke. Fra Antonio, was any cheat employed to trap this girl into marriage against her will? Mm, no, we have no actual evidence of any cheat. Was the girl of age? I believe so. Then wherefore is the prisoner here? This marriage was a deplorable thing, if you like. Bonaparte himself is almost at the gates of Madrid. His general, Lasalle, menaces our city of Toledo itself. But lawful marriage, however regrettable, is no sin or crime. There are other matters in the indictment, I think. Then continue, but give us nothing that is not material. Item, that on the 12th of October, 1808, the Sergeant del being in command of a five-gun battery of light artillery, did direct the fire of his guns against the Holy Church of St. Martha the Innocent. What? And thereby, of his wicked malice, destroyed that church utterly. Captain Dalbray. Is this charge true? It is, yes. You admit it? Good father, hear what I have to say. The church blew up, I think. Would you boast of your sin, young man? It blew up because it was stored with kegs of gunpowder for your army. I had every right to fire on it. And that is all the defense you have to make? I tell you, I had every right to fire on it by military law. There is was military law above God's law? I, I don't know. I did my duty, that's all. Long live the Emperor! Captain Dalbray, mark what I say. No man, however great his heresy, is ever condemned to be burnt in the fire. Fire? The fire. If he first recant and acknowledge the error of his ways. But for you, Jean Dalbray, there can be no mercy, no pity, no atonement. The only sentence of this court can be death. Death. Yes. The secular or government arm to which we must release you has devised two ways of punishment in cases such as yours. You hear the tolling of the bell? I hear them. It is the procession of the condemned going to the auto de fe. Soon the yellow light of the flames will stream through the windows and flicker on floor and ceiling. Nunca dinora mortis intuit manibus domine. Most of those condemned out of mercy will be strangled before they are burned. It cannot be so with you, Jean d'Albray. You must die in one of two ways, either with the direst of physical agony. A slow fire of green wood, iced bandages about the head and the heart so that the fire does not approach too quickly. Or else, Jean d'Albray, you must die in a certain other way... I've done with this! Pass your sentence and let me go! The law does not permit me to tell you now what this other way is. The sentence of this court, therefore... I... I had swooned. Yet still, I would not say that all of consciousness was lost. In the deepest slumber, no. In delirium, no. In a swoon, no. In death, no. Even in the grave, all is not lost. There are shadows of memory which tell us indistinctly of tall figures that lifted me and bore me in silence down, down, still down, until a hideous dizziness oppressed me at that descent into the earth. Then... 
as consciousness swam back to my wits, darkness, a stone floor, and darkness. Oh, Beatrice, Beatrice, my wife, Beatrice. Did you call me, Jean? Beatrice, was that you who spoke? Yes, Jean. You were here in the dungeon of the Inquisition. I am not really speaking to you, my poor Jean. I am only in your imagination. Am I mad, then? No. But your brain is fevered. You only think you hear me. No, no, no. I, I do. I do. I hear you clearly. As clearly as I once heard in you. In the little church near the Abro where we were married. Yes, yes, yes. I, I destroyed that church, Beatrice. I had to. It was my commanding officer's order. I know, Jean. Be comforted. There are those who care. You won't leave me. As long as I am in your heart, I shall be here. I, I was strong once. Now, now I am weak. Once I was reckless. Now, now I am afraid. What am I, Beatrice? What are they going to do to me? I cannot tell. Remember, my voice comes only from your own brain. Are you fettered? Fettered? I... Uh, no. They've not chained you to the wall? Uh, no, no, no. They've, they've taken away my uniform. They've given me sandals and a robe of what feels like coarse but I'm, I'm still free. Ah, free. Take courage, Jean. Free. And in the grasp of the Inquisition, Beatrice. Yes, Jean. It's completely dark. There's hardly any air. I, I dread to get up. I dread to stretch out my hand. Suppose, suppose they've buried me alive. Courage. Can you stand up? I, I, I think so. Then walk. Walk as far as you can. Measure the limit of the cell. If this is not a tomb... You're right, Beatrice. That always. I'll, I'll try. Are you on your feet? Yes. Now, now pray. Pray for a poor devil who always meant well. One pace. Two paces. Three. Four. You are very weak, Jean. Rest a moment. Where are you now, Beatrice? In, in the flesh, I mean. You know that, Jean. In the old house by the olive grove, scorned of my people. Yes, I know it. Each morning I climb to the hilltop and watch. Go on, go on. Sometimes I think I hear gun wheels yes. rumble in the hills. Yes. And long-moving columns yes. with the red dust rising about Go them. on, go on. First come the heavy cavalry in plume-crested helmets. Yes. On their flanks, wheeling like hawks, light hussars in blue and scarlet. And behind them, in a glitter of bayonets as vast as light points on the sea. Yes. Rank upon yes. rank, the long gray coats and the tall bearskin caps. The old god and the grand army. It is only a vision, my dear one. They do not come. Ah, will they? Will they ever come, Beatrice? I cannot tell. Then, then I must face what has been prepared for me. Walk again, Jean. Try. Keep your hand in front of you. This rope, this rope, it impedes me. And the floor is treacherous with slime. But I'll try. Four paces. Five. Six. Seven. It can't be a tomb. Eight. Nine. Look out! Uh, I'm all right. I'm all right. I fell, I fell to my knees. I, the rope, the rope tripped me. My... My hand is in front of me. It's lower than my face, but I... I feel... I feel nothing. Nothing, Jean. It's a pit. A circular pit. And I fell on the very edge of it. Oh. They would have made you walk into it. Yes. Oh, there. There's a loose fragment of rock just inside the edge. Oh. If I can dislodge it. Listen. <laughs> There's, there's something down there. Rats, it may be. Rats, yes, but something else. I, I heard it move. So did I. What is in the pit, Sean? I don't know. But I... you're saved. Uh, saved, Beatrice. Saved from the Inquisition. <laughs> my, my torture has been merely postponed.
deep sleep fell upon me. Sleep like that of death. How long it lasted, I, I know not. But when I opened my eyes once again, I could see. Yes, see. My prison was large and lofty. Its walls formed a massive iron plates bolted or joined together. A wild, sulfurous luster, I could not trace its origin, lit up the dungeon and the circular pit and the crudely daubed skeleton figures painted in evil colors on the iron walls. Skeleton figures, demon figures, gargoyle figures. The colors a little blurred as from the effects of the damp. It must approach you slowly and force itself into your mind. It must stalk you like a tiger. It must bring you face to face at last with the king of terror. When I, when I regained consciousness, I lay on my back and at full length on a low framework of wood. To this framework, I was securely bound by a long fastening resembling a surgical bandage. Bound? But why? 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 The bandage passed round and round my body, leaving at liberty only my head and my left arm. With much exertion, I could supply myself with food from an earthen dish on the floor beside me. It was meat, highly seasoned, but there was no water. Beatrice! Beatrice, where are you? Here, Jean, as always. Your voice sounds stronger. Does it, Jean? And I... I can see you now. I can see you as clearly as I saw you months ago. Oh, I wish it were true. Your bonnet and the parasol you carried in summer and the high-waisted blue dress. You are weaker, my dear, and more uh, fevered. Have I... Have I been asleep? Yes, Jean. They must have been here while I slept. They have bound me. Why? 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 Stop those voices! Why? Stop them! Mine Why? too, Jean. Why? I Why? am not here either, you Why? know. Don't Why? drive me away. Beatrice, Beatrice, look, look, look. Where? At the ceiling of this room, 30, 40 feet up, what do you see? I see painted on the ceiling a figure of Father Time. Anything else? But Father Time carries no sign. No. He carries instead what looks like a gigantic pendulum. From an ancient clock. About one thing, I swear I'm in my right senses. I saw that pendulum move. A painting cannot move. Yet I swear the pendulum did move. It swung a little back and forth, just like a real pendulum. Try not to trouble your brain. That pendulum is real. Beatrice, Beatrice, take care. Take care of what? You're not looking at the pendulum now. Take care of the rats, the rats from the pit. I see them. They're swarming out in dozens. You can see their eyes glitter. One of them ran across the hem of your dress. Did it, son? What did they want? They caught the scent of the meat in the dish beside you. But they'll not get it. Go away, go away, you vermin. Move your hand above the plate, Jean. Move. Beatrice, Beatrice, where are you going? I, I could hardly hear you. You are sending me away, Jean. I sending you away. My poor loved one. You can't bear to see the rats running about my feet. Beatrice! in a cell swarming with vermin. There are others I had rather see here. I'd rather see... You call me Captain Dalbray. Then in spirit, I am here. Who are you? Don't you recognize me? No, I do not. I am that second inquisitor, Fra Antonio, whom you thought unfair at your trial. But we were not unfair. We administer the law. That is all. So, I command you, go. Not until I have first told you what you already get. Which is? There are two forms of death for such as you. One, death with its direst physical torture. The other, death with its direst mental torture. And I, I have been condemned to the second? Your guess is good. Listen. Yes. Do you hear anything? Yes, yes, I do. I, I hear something. Turn your eyes upwards. Yes. Look at the ceiling. The pendulum. Aye, the pendulum. It's descended. Only a foot or so, as yet. 
As you notice, it is not really a pendulum. Its underside is a crescent, formed of sharp, of razor-sharp steel. You mean? A ponderous weight, Captain Dalbray. Its movement is slow now, but soon it will take on momentum. It will swing wider and wider. Thirty feet, perhaps. Presently, as it swings, you will hear it hiss. And with each broad movement, it will creep a trifle lower. Steel is directly above me. Yes. Above the region of your heart. Ah. Lie still and look up at it. How? How long before? You need have no immediate fear. It will not be too soon. But how soon? Who can tell? In the name of pity, give me some answer. Hours, perhaps days. It's beginning to swing wider. I, I can't take my eyes from it. Its glitter fascinates you, eh? See how it shines in that wild light. And this is your utmost refinement in cruelty. The law, Captain Dalbray, is never cruel. And now, still in spirit, I leave you to your meditations. It will not be too soon. Minutes, hours, days. Down, steadily down it crept. Days passed. It might have been many days before it, it swept so closely as to fan me with its morbid breath. Minutes, hours, days. The odor of the sharp steel forced itself into my nostrils. The right. and wide the shriek of a damned spirit to my heart with the stealthy pace of a tiger down certainly relentlessly down I, I prayed I wearied heaven with my prayer for its more speedy descent. I grew frantically mad and struggled to force myself up against that swinging, glittering death. Ah, of no avail. Down, still unceasingly, still inevitably down, the sharp steel flashed past within three inches of my chest. Beatrice! John? Beatrice! Where are you? I heard you calling, John. I am here. It is a strange thing, Beatrice. I'm quite calm. You are resigned, then. No. That is the strange thing. Even now, I am not resigned. Is there a way out? How can there be? Ten, twelve more vibrations, and will fray the surge of my robe. Only lightly as a loser in a delicate hand. There will be many sweeps before it bites deep. No, I can't escape it. You kept me away from you, Jean. You locked me out of your thoughts. If I am here only in your thoughts, why should I fear the rats? The rats! You open your eyes and your eyes blaze. What is it? The rats! Do they, do they still swarm here? Across the floor and over the meat platter. They have taken nearly all your food. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, they are ravenous. And they have sharp teeth. Well... The meat is oily and spiced. If I take what remains of it, scatter, you vermin! And rub that meat from the bandages that hold me here. Try it, John. Try it. may be too late. If I leave my body a fraction of an inch up. Try it, I tell you. Try it. Ah, but look, they scatter as soon as I do try. But they are watching you. I can see their eyes. Look, they're creeping back. Can I stand with rats crawling across me? Can the flesh barely... One of them has leaped on the wooden framework. Another followed. They're gnawing at the bandage. Seven, eight more sweeps of the pendulum and... the bandage give way. A little... Lie still, Jean, lie still. Ten, twelve, a dozen rats now. Is death, I wonder, worse than this disgust? A dozen sharp knives could do no better. The bandage is loosened to ribbons. 
Now, if you move sideways, yes. carefully, yes. and drop to the floor. Stop it, as I can't move. My arms and my legs are numb. There is no power The steel to... has frayed your robe. A minute more will be too late. And Try. Then with all the strength that is in me, and all the hate that I bear my enemies... Free! A second time. Free! pendulum stops. They are drawing it back up through the roof. Each move I make, he watched. He never doubted. Yet with all they could do to you, they have failed twice. They will not fail. No more dallying with the king of terrors. What else can they do? I can't say. See, see how the rats gnaw in silence at that bandage. To what food, I wonder... But you escaped the pit. I escaped it once. Listen. What do you hear? A groaning. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, grinding as a metal. It was only the cog wheels of the pendulum. Uh, I think not, Beatrice. Why not? It seemed to come from behind those iron-plated walls. It seems to shake the dungeon as a mill wheel might shake it. it. Stand up, my poor Jean. Get up off your knees. I can't, Beatrice. I can't endure anymore. The paintings on the walls of this dungeon... The skeletons and imps and devils, they seem different. They are different. The color sharpen and grow bright. The demon's eyes glare. The skeleton hands are stretched. Don't you catch even yet the odor of heated iron? Heated iron? Beatrice, my darling, I... I have been much humbled. But I won't... I won't have you see me in tears. I, I order you to go. John... In the name of heaven, Beatrice. you're sending me away. Yes, yes, Go. in the name of heaven. Go, go. A suffocating heat pervaded the prison. A deeper glow settled in the painted eyes that glared at me. I could draw no breath of air into my lungs. Against the loom of that fiery destruction, the thought of the pit and its coolness come like a soothing bomb. I staggered to the edge of the pit. I looked into it. The enkindled walls and roof lighted it to its depths. Yet for one wild moment, even then, I refused to believe the horror of what I saw beneath me. Does the pit please you, Captain Dalbridge? Not the pit! Merciful God! Anything but that! And how shall you avoid it? Look. This dungeon has changed its shape. That is true. The walls are closing in. It was formerly a square, and now it is flattening slowly toward the center to force me into the pit. Of course. Ah, it'll force you along with me. Again, apparently you must be told, Captain Dalbray, that you are speaking only to your own sick fancy. I am not here at all. Farewell. And now... Now closer and closer through the red burning walls, forcing me into the pit with a swiftness that left me no time for thought. I shrank back, but the closing walls pressed me relentlessly onward. At length, for my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold. I, I screamed once. I started on the edge of the pit. An outstretched arm caught my own as I was about to fall fainting into the abyss. It was that of General LaSalle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Inquisition was in the hands of its enemies. And so closes Poe's celebrated story, The Pit and the Pendulum, starring Henry Hull. We invite you to another adventure of suspense next Tuesday at the same hour. Until then, this is the man in black saying good night. Mm-hmm.
William Spear, the producer, John Dietz, the director, Bernard Herman, the composer-conductor, and John Dixon Carr, the author, are collaborators on... Suspense. You just listened to The Pit and the Pendulum, as heard on the January 12, 1943 broadcast of Suspense. Our next classic radio adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's fiction is from Escape. This show ran for seven years on CBS Radio and was the foremost program of its kind, featuring dramatic tales of adventure that ranged from spy thrillers to terrifying murder mysteries and even some science fiction plots. Even though Poe's work would seem perfectly suited for Escape, it was only used as source material on one occasion. And that is the broadcast we bring you tonight. And now, The Fall of the House of Usher, as heard on Escape in October of 1947. Are you upset with today's headlines? Worried about the high cost of living? Want to get away from it all? CBS offers you Escape. You are the friend of a man living in death. Confidant of a ghoul. Witness to a nameless terror. You are a guest in the House of Usher. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a gloom-shrouded moor and a house where dread holds sway. As Edgar Allan Poe recounts it in his famous story, the fall of the House of Usher. It is with some regret, but I believe advisable that I identify myself only as a friend of Roderick Usher. Certainly the last and perhaps the only friend of that unhappy man. Having only one sister, he was the last male descendant of the ancient house of Usher. Roderick had been one of my boon companions in boyhood, but many years had elapsed now since our last meeting. And so as I held his letter in my hand, not yet opening it, I reflected with no little sadness upon the devious fates that chart our courses and drive old friends away from one another. But then a sudden feverish and nostalgic curiosity laid hold of me, and with fingers made clumsy by their eagerness, I tore open the letter and read, My dear friend, my need of you has so far outgrown my pride that I'm going to request a favor which I realize full well may involve considerable inconvenience to yourself. For some time past, I have been suffering from an acute bodily illness, illness intensified by serious mental oppression if I may so call it. A horror which looms over me, a horror grown so great I dare no longer face it alone. And so, in all humility, and for the sake of years gone by, I beseech you to come to me at once, here to the family estate in the north. Should events conspire to prevent your coming, then only God may know the consequences. Your friend in desperation, Roderick Usher. And so it happened that at the end of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the middle of October, I found myself as the shades of evening drew on within view of the grim and melancholy House of Usher. I confess that the first sight of the house 
the fungus-covered walls of stone thrusting their crumbling ramparts against the darkening sky, rising out of the sullen, sluggish waters of the black tarn at their base, the bleak and vacant windows staring blindly, the bone-white trunks of decaying trees. These things filled me with a nameless and desolate terror so that I reined in my horse and sat trembling, half fearing to cross the wooden bridge that led over the waters of the moat and up to the entrance of the house of Usher. Then impatiently I shook off this strange feeling of dread and was an instant later clattering over the wooden bridge and onto the courtyard. I dismounted quickly, tossed my reins to the silent lackey who approached, strode across the gravel, and up to the massive wooden portal, the door of the House of Usher. Good afternoon. My name is... I know. You're the friend of Master Roderick. Please come inside, sir. Thank you. But may I inquire how it happens you know me? You have been expected for some time, sir. Yes, true. But also I'm a stranger to you and could be some other visitor. That you could be anyone other than the friend whom Master Roderick expects, sir, would be impossible. You see, no one else would ever come to this house. Then I followed his stealthy footsteps through many dark and intricate passages. My earlier foreboding heightened and was made fearful by the somber aspect of the hallways by which we passed. The many unused rooms reaching out with their vast emptiness like some hideous jungle creeper. But at length, we stood before the door of the master's studio and there the servant left me, departed and left me to go in alone. The man across the room, half reclining on the couch, his back turned toward me, did not hear the opening of the door. For the space of several heartbeats, I saw only the deathly pale and ghastly sunken features of a stranger. Then only with difficulty could I recognize, behind that mask, my boyhood friend. For surely, under light of heaven, no man had ever before so terribly altered in so brief a time. I said, Roderick Usher. Oh. Oh, my friend, my friend, you've come at last. Thank God you did come. Oh, Roderick, did you not know I would? Could you not be sure that no long years would ever dim the friendship we shared in youth? Hmm. So many things have dimmed. Ah, youth. It seems so long ago. But now you're here, and we'll find it, relive it all over again, every glorious moment of it. And all these shadows, all these gibbering phantoms that haunt me, they'll be driven out. And then the sun will shine again, and we'll be young again and relive... Roderick! Oh, oh, but forgive me, my friend. My excessive joy at the sight of you after so many years drives me into a frenzy of talk. How many years has it... Oh, no matter... It is enough that you are here, here, and brought with you all the lost, all the happy days of my boyhood. But uh, I'd expect it from your letter to find you in serious straits indeed. Instead, you seem in the best of spirits. You have the right to know. But in all frankness, here in your presence, I find it difficult to credit important to those things which only yesterday filled me with terror. True, I've been ill. A nervous affliction, something in the nature of a family weakness, probably. It has affected me with a morbid acuteness of the senses, such that quite often the least sounds and odors and colors become irritating beyond endurance. Then I've eaten but little, as you can see. But surely you've retained the services of a physician. A physician? <laughs> oh, yes, of course. He calls almost daily, though it is more often Madeline that he attends. You remember my twin sister, Madeline? 
For her, I fear, more greatly than for myself. Even today, she's taken to her bed, and I have no doubt will never rise from it again. Oh, a tragedy. The sympathies of my heart go out to you. Oh, but, but leave it for the present. Leave it to dream of all those happy days we left so far behind. Everything will be different now that you're here. Do you remember when we were 12? But the happy forgetfulness which Roderick found in my coming was short-lived. And in a few days, he had sunk into a morose torpor from which only occasionally with frantic difficulty could he reach the joy of our first few hours of meeting. More often, his mental apathy was broken by bursts of vicious temper and violent ill humor. Fits I could only excuse on the basis of his illness. And that illness began in my mind to assume a most mysterious character. Being unable to divine its true nature from Roderick's hesitant offerings, I took the liberty of questioning the physician a few days later when I chanced to encounter him in a hallway. Yes, yes, she's resting as well as might be expected. But she continues to decline. Is that not correct, Doctor? That would seem to be the case. And uh, the malady, the illness which has stricken her, is it the same as that which affects her brother Roderick? I may venture that it is. Might I inquire the nature of this illness? As to that, I am unable to say. You imply, then, that I have no right to the information? Not at all. I am confessing to you quite simply, sir. I do not know what afflicts Madeline and Roderick Usher. And so a week passed. A week in which the sullen, leaden skies darkened into deeper oppressiveness in which Roderick's deathly pallor and creeping mental dissolution grew more apparent. A week in which the monstrous atmosphere of this ancient mausoleum began to crawl insidiously within my own consciousness, stirring into life a formless, unknown dread. Then one evening, we were sitting in the vaulted studio, while the first shadows of night began to flow together into pools of darkness. Roderick had been unusually troubled during the day and had been trying to find some solace by playing on the violin. Of a sudden, there came a knock upon the door. Stop it! Stop that infernal pounding, do you hear? Do you wish to drive me completely mad? Open the door and come in, come in! It's the doctor. Well, what is it? What do you want? Master Usher... I regret that I must say this, but it is my sad duty to inform you that your sister Madeline is no longer living. Madeline, my sister, then she's dead? She breathes no more. Dead? <laughs> and perhaps, my dear doctor, you can tell me what caused her death. Unfortunately, I can only take refuge in the term. Heart failure. Heart failure? <laughs> ah, yes, eh? <laughs> of course. Uh, very well, Doctor. If you'll be kind enough to wait, I'll come down directly and discuss the arrangement. At your service. I bid you good afternoon, gentlemen. Roderick, I assure you of my deepest sympathy. You do? Your deepest sympathy. The doctor regrets his sad duty. Are you fools, both of you fools? I, I don't understand. Haven't you seen it yet? Can you not feel it about you? The horrid, monstrous, brooding spirit of this accursed house. Can't you hear its evil laughter as it lurks in the hallways and grows fat upon the soul? My dead sister. Roderick. Can't you see that it matters nothing to me that she's dead? That I myself walk but a few steps behind her into the same shadows of hell? Can't you sense those hideous tentacles even now reaching out for me? For me, who now am the last living... 
If it be living, the last living descendant of the accursed house of Usher. Such was the passing of Madeline Usher, once living, now dead. And her very death, untimely in its aspects, bore to my trembling soul a portent of events yet more hideous, more horrible, and yet to come. At a later hour of that same sad night, Roderick came into my chamber to voice an intention so morbidly unnatural that for the moment I could only feel that his tottering reason had at last failed him entirely. Then you refuse? But, but, Roderick, this is madness. I tell you, before this night is over, the coffin body of my sister shall rest in the vault beneath this house, and if you will not help me, I shall do it myself. But why? Why? I could not stand to think of her buried out there in the dark graveyard, alone among the dead. Roderick. She, too, is dead. It's fantastic how little we know of death or of life. The doctor says she no longer breathes. She is dead. She was so lovely, was my sister. Roderick. I must keep Madeline near me. Nothing but evil would come of such an act. I can trust no one but you. Not even the physician himself. He hates us because he can't discover what it is that kills us. Even he might steal the body of my beloved sister. And he might learn our secret. You understand, don't you, my friend? Yes, Roderick. Yes. I understand. And so it came about, near midnight. We two alone made our way to an upper chamber of the house. And taking up the black coffin between us, in the shuddering light of candles, we walked the tortuous passageways, slowly descended the curving stairs of stone, passed beneath the moldy level of the earth forced open a massive and age-rusted door of iron and stood at last with our ghastly burden in a subterranean dank and musty crypt underneath the house of Usher. Over here, my friend, on these trestles. Now, a trifle higher with the head. There. Oh, may you sleep in peace and dream, sweet sister. From I who tread the same path soft behind you. Come, Roderick. The thing is done. Oh, wait. Stay a moment. We've not yet affixed the coffin lid. See? I've left it loose so it can be turned back. No. I beg you. A last farewell. No more. Look. Is she not beautiful? Yes. She was very beautiful. Was? <laughs> yes, of course. The look of her confused me. But do you not see it, too? The warm glow of the cheeks, the eyes shut softly, those lips half-parted. Does it not seem that she may rise up and speak to us at any moment? This gruesome place inspires those morbid fancies. Morbid fancies? But now dead she seems to live, and living seems already dead. Man, you seek out madness. You court it with your very thoughts. And if I do, what matters? What value can there be in reason without the hope of life? Dead, you say to me, she is dead. But what certainty? Why not with equal reason say instead she lives, and that I... I, the last of Usher, am the one who is already dead. Mm -hmm. 
I prevailed upon my friend at last to leave that mournful place. And so with grim finality we secured the ebon lid, took up our flickering candles and departed from the crypt, leaving it alone with its darkness and death. The ponderous portal closed behind us, and then my soul for one brief instant felt the dread and awful meaning of eternity. There followed then a week of such dreary gloom and melancholy that my own spirit quavered at the menace of the nameless thing and shadowed in that house. By perceptible degrees, the living soul of Roderick Usher flickered lower. More ghastly grew his pallor, more tremulous the extremity of his terror. day following the death of Lady Madeline fell upon the last day of grim and gray October and brought with it as the curtains of night descended the fitful breath of a rising tempest, uneasy gusts of sodden rain, and the sound of sullen thunderous rumbles born of the dim flares of sheet lightning somewhere behind the lowering pall. I retired at a late hour but found sleep impossible. At length, overpowered by some strange presentiment of evil, I found my reposeful inaction no longer endurable. And so I arose, threw on my clothes in haste, and fell to pacing the floor of my darkened chamber. Then in one instant, a soft sound in the blackness froze my steps in paralysis of terror. The latch of my chamber door was being lifted from without. Oh, was it? Who is it, I say? It is I, Roderick. Oh. Oh, Roderick. What are you doing up and about at this hour, in pitch blackness? Wait. Let me light the candles. No, I am quite used to darkness. I heard your footsteps and knew that you must be awake, even as I was. But... Can it be that you've not seen it? I don't understand you. I've seen nothing. Then stay. You shall see it, even as I've seen it for these past two hours. Wait, wait. I'll throw open the casement window. It was indeed a tempestuous yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and in its beauty. The exceeding density of the clouds which hung so low as to press upon the turrets of the house did not prevent our perceiving the velocity with which they flew careening from all points against one another. We had no glimpse of the moon or stars, but terrible to behold, the undersurfaces of the huge cloud masses as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and clearly visible phosphorescence which hung like a shroud about the mansion itself. You see, my friend, tonight the thing grows bolder, gathers strength from the storm and from the dead soul it's eaten. No, no, Roderick, you must not look at this. Here, I shall close this window and pull these curtains. And now, candlelight. Such darkness is the very mother of evil fear. There. Now come, sit here. Suppose I read aloud from some book or another. As you wish. I presume it matters little which. Oh, here. Here's a volume of The Mad Tryst by Canning. Will it serve? As you said, it matters little. I've always found the scene to be quite entertaining, where Nethelred dreams of fighting a dragon. Now, let's see. Oh, yes. Here it is. And so, Ethelred waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit who mocked him from inside the hut. But feeling the rain upon his back and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his axe and quickly made a hole in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand. And now pulling sturdily, he so cracked and ripped all asunder that the noise of the dry and hollow sounding wood alarmed and reverberated through out the forest. Why do you stop? Why, uh, <clears throat> that's, that's strange. I 
I fancied I just heard the very sound I read about. Let us say it was caused by the storm, pray continue. Oh, yes, the storm. Of course. <clears throat> but, but Ethelred, upon entering the door, was, was amazed to perceive no sign of the evil hermit, but instead a dragon of prodigious and scaly demeanor, which sat on guard before a shield of shining brass. And Ethelred uplifted his axe and struck the head of the dragon, which fell before him with a shriek so horrid and harsh, like whereof was never before. What? What sound is that? Sound? The shriek of a dragon, my friend, read on. I, uh, very well. And now the champion, bethinking himself of the shield of brass, approached across the silver floor to where the shield hung upon the wall. But the shield, not waiting for his coming, loosed and fell upon the silver floor with a mighty great... Roderick, I tell you, something moves within this house. That sound, it reverberated through the very walls. Can you tell me now you did not hear it? Hear it now? Oh, yes, I hear it and have heard it long moments, hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dared not speak. But why? Do you not know we put her living in the tomb? I tell you now, I heard her first feeble movements in the coffin many, many days ago. And I, I felt then it mattered little. Now she comes to upbraid me for my haste. And that last dread sound. Yes, I heard it. The opening of the metal door to the crypt beneath the house. Now she comes here. Have I not heard her footsteps on the stair? Do I not distinguish the heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman that I am. I tell you that she now stands without that. Oh, but even now she opens it. There in the flickering light of candles, in the gloom and curtain doorway, stood the shrouded body of Lady Madeline. For one shuddering instant she swayed there. Then as Roderick uttered a single piteous cry, she fell upon him in violent and now final death agonies and bore him to the floor... A corpse. From that chamber and from that mansion, I fled aghast out the massive portal over the causeway into the night. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I looked back in heightened terror, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The baleful gleam came from the setting full and blood-red moon which now shone vividly through a widening crack in the walls of the house itself. And even as I gazed, its fissure opened rapidly. There came a fierce breath of the tempest. The entire lunar orb burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There came a long, tumultuous, shouting sound like the voice of thousand waters. And... And the dark, deep tarn at my feet Close sullenly and silently forever over the pitiful ruins of the ancient house of Usher. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and tonight brought you The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, with Paul Fries as the narrator, Ramsey Hill as Roderick Usher, and Sheridan Hall as the physician. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhrer. <laughs> That will wrap up this episode of The Twilight Beacon, featuring two of the most chilling tales from America's foremost author of gothic horror, Edgar Allan Poe. You heard The Pit and the Pendulum, from the January 12, 1943 airing of Suspense, and 
The Fall of the House of Usher, as broadcast on Escape, October 22, 1947. The Twilight Beacon will return this Saturday, October 15th, with another Saturday sci-fi episode, featuring two vintage science fiction tales from the golden age of radio. Until then, this is Jedediah D. Blackwell, saying good night, everyone, and good luck getting to sleep. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Twilight Beacon Podcast. New episodes are released on thetwilightbeacon.com during the month of October and can be found on your favorite podcast apps and streaming services. The Twilight Beacon Podcast is produced and edited by Jason and Jacob Burgess. Music by Alexander Nakarada. Special thanks to the Old Time Radio Researchers Group and OTRR.com. Visit thetwilightbeacon.com for archived episodes and the schedule of upcoming shows. You can follow The Twilight Beacon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest program updates.